as you did for my abandonment of my post. Pray for my wife. I'm a terrible media team member, but I'm a good husband, okay? So, now, uh, we're going to be finishing our series today uh, on the Creed, and we're going to be in Ephesians 3, so if you guys want to open there, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 in Ephesians 3. You'll be able to follow along with that on your phones, maybe in the app, maybe in the Bible app, maybe on the screen, maybe in your actual Bible doesn't matter. We're just going to be reading verses 7 through 11. Paul writes, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Amen. I feel like especially in this season we're aware of it, but in any season of life, life presents us with a whole lot of questions. Life presents us with a whole lot of of uncertainty. We're constantly confronted with it over and over again. These seeming contradictions, the appearances of our lives the things that we're seeing, and then the things that we know we believe, and how they come into conflict with one another again and again. Luke Timothy Johnson calls it the the scandal of appearances. The scandal of appearances, the ways in which we wrestle between appearance and belief. And the creed plays a really important role in all of this. In the face of these appearances, the creed is speaking something. Every time we say it, We're speaking in the face of these appearances that we wrestle with all around us. In the face of a seemingly meaningless existence. In the face of an existence which is some kind of cosmic mistake in the eyes of so many people within our culture. The creed invites us, reminds us that God has created and ordered the world in a very particular kind of way with a very particular kind of purpose. In the face of a seemingly unredeemable humanity, every day we're aware that humanity seems to spiral more and more, and yet the creed reminds us that God values humanity at a deep level, such a deep level that he has sent his son himself, that God himself has taken on flesh in order to redeem us. And then, in the face of the apparent impossibility, that God himself could enter into human existence. This is something people always wrestle with. If there is a God, the idea that he would enter into existence alongside of us is implausible, and yet the creed reminds us God not only can, but he has entered into human existence. He's tasted of our sorrow, even tasted of death itself. 
in the face of, of empirical evidence that would tell us the resurrection is a silly notion. It's implausible, impossible that such a thing could happen. The creed reminds us Jesus did die. Truly, he was buried, and yet now he is alive forevermore, seated at the right hand of the Father. In the face of, of our seemingly untransformed lives, our unchanged selves, and the brokenness of those we see around us, the creed reminds us God has given us his Holy Spirit, and God is making us new by the work of his Spirit in us. The creed kind of confronts the scandal of appearances. It speaks to all of these things we wrestle with. But I, I think what we're talking about today might be the hardest thing to believe of all, if we're being honest. Maybe you feel the weight of it every time you say it, week in and week out. Maybe you feel it as you speak these words. Right here at the end, in the last section of the creed, after all this stuff about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're saying we believe in God, and yet right here at the end, we slip in this little other piece. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Andrew Arndt pointed this out, a pastor out in Colorado Springs. You have to notice about the creed. And you may not, because most of the time you're reading it off a screen, but there were three sections to the creed. The Father is the focus of the first, the Son, the focus of the second, and the Spirit is the focus of the third. There is no separate section for the church. It's spoken within the same breath that we're expressing our belief in the Holy Spirit. So when you say that you believe in the Holy Spirit... Our belief in the church is just a continuation of our belief in God, the Holy Spirit. We say just before we get to the church, we believe in the Holy Spirit. He has spoken through the prophets. And so when we say we believe in the church, we're saying now God is primarily speaking through his word and the church. This is the theater through which God is moving and speaking and making himself known, the church. So we're saying we believe in us. We believe in community. We believe in this unique group of people, the people of God. It's one thing to say, I believe in God. It's another thing to say, I believe in these people, right? It feels strange to say, especially if you've ever been a part of church, especially for the person who's been in church. Even if you've only been once or twice, I think you realize Church is not really all that impressive an experience most of the time. If it is, it, you kind of become wary of it. Church is not impressive from an, an outsider's perspective. Think about it. You walk in the first time, you know nothing about church. Try to imagine such a scenario. You walk in, the people gather together, the people talk with one another, the people sing for a while. Then one of the people gets up and tries to convince the rest of the people that what they believe is true and real. Maybe he does that effectively, maybe he does not, because there is no real worldly qualification for this person standing up and doing such a thing. After all of that, they, the whole service culminates in the eating of a piece of bread or cardboard, who can tell the difference at this point? 
They drink the world's tiniest cup of juice, and they leave excited. It's a, it's a strange thing. There's nothing about it that seems all that special. It feels very ordinary, really. Church can feel ordinary. But to say that we believe in that can feel strange. And then people begin to think about all the ways in which they feel like the church is not just ordinary or unimpressive. The church is guilty of so many terrible things throughout history. It's just, maybe it's failed you personally. Maybe you've been burned by the church, hurt by the church. You've seen things happen in church that make it hard for you to say, we believe in the church. And then there's Ephesians. When Paul talks about the church, he celebrates the church as God's glorious inheritance in the saints. He celebrates the church as those tasked with revealing the manifold wisdom of God. Pretty nice thing to say about the church. And keep in mind, Paul is not speaking in the abstract. When he says to the Ephesians, there are names and faces that come to mind. Paul lived alongside these people for years as he began this church and pastored this church in Ephesus. He knows these people. He lived alongside them. He went to church with people just like you have gone to church with in the past, presently. He knew all of that. He knew those kinds of people. He knew those kinds of situations that you're thinking of. He knew the ordinary. And still, he had this glorious, romantic view of the church. That word, manifold, is unique. It kind of catches your attention as you're reading it. The church has been given this task of revealing the manifold wisdom of God, speaking the manifold wisdom of God to the, the heavenly authorities. Like this is, this is interesting language he's using, right? And if you look in the New Testament, you won't find that word anywhere else. That Greek word is completely unique to this passage. If you look in the Old Testament, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, not just a Hebrew translation. There's a Greek one called the Septuagint. And there's a really familiar story where this word is used, the story of Joseph. When we think of Joseph, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is his many-colored coat. And the way the story goes, remember Jacob, Joseph's father, kind of has a favorite. He loves Joseph, and he decides to give him a really nice coat. That's what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew just says that Joseph was given a really nice tunic. But if you read the Greek translation, that's where you begin to get what we're used to hearing. He was given a coat of many colors. That's that word that Paul is using in Ephesians 3. So this is what Paul is saying about the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is this complex, multifaceted, and beautiful thing. It is unsearchable and inexpressible, and yet all of its color, all of its beauty, God is choosing to reveal on the canvas of this unique community, the church. God is revealing his many-colored, manifold wisdom through the people of God. God has so much more in mind for the church than I think we often do. 
Like we have all sorts of things that come to mind when we think of church. We have all these expectations tied to it, but I don't think we have near as much tied up in the church as Paul does in the way he's talking about it. Think about it. As you're reading the creed, there's this structure. God is revealed to us as community, if you look at the creed. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit in this beautiful relationship with Himself. Eternally, before creation, before the dawn of time, God existed in relationship with Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this community of the Godhead is characterized by mutual submission, by sacrifice, by self-giving love. The early church called it the divine dance. This is what's at the heart of this relationship of the Trinity, this divine dance of submission and self-giving. There is no hierarchy in the Trinity. That's what's hard for people to wrap their minds around. No one is greater than anybody else in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all constantly pointing toward the other. The glorious Father has chosen to reveal himself most clearly in his humble and lowly Son, who no one thought much of. When God wants you to understand what he's like, he says, see the Son, behold the Lamb of God. And yet Jesus spends his entire life pointing us back toward the Father, glorying in who the Father is, teaching us to glory in the Father. The Spirit has this role of pointing us back to both, Father and Son, always pointing us toward them. And yet, if you look at the Old Testament, God's desire was always to dwell with his people, to live with his people, right? And so he gives them his presence. He creates this community, the people of God. He gives them a law that allows for them to live in his presence. His desire was for them to always know his presence, his spirit. Jesus, in the same way, points his disciples toward the Spirit as he's leaving. It's good that I'm leaving, because if I leave, then the Helper comes. You need the Helper. You need the Spirit. They're always pointing to one another. This is what you get. God himself is always doing this. And since he is revealed to us as community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's fitting that he's chosen to reveal himself in a community characterized by that same mutual submission and self-giving love, sacrifice for one another. He's chosen to reveal himself in these days now through the church. And so each week, as we recite these words of the creed, we're saying that we believe God has chosen to reveal or, or to express himself in this way, first of all, he does so in creation. God created everything. We say that in the, the first part of the creed. But then in the second part of the, the, the creed, we begin to talk about how God has chosen to, to kind of sharpen the focus, to bring a sharper focus to who he is by the sending of his son. If creation wasn't clear enough, now in Jesus it's becoming clearer. And then even further in the third section, we're saying that God has revealed himself through the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, who not only teaches us what God is like, but is transforming us into his image, helping us to recognize that image that we were made in. And now we're saying, we believe in our day. 
God has chosen to express himself to this world through a body, through a people, the church. And there are these four marks. Maybe you've said it before. Like I, I'm sure you've, you've said these, these statements over and over again throughout the years. You've memorized it. You've gotten used to the way it sounds. It kind of rolls off the tongue at this point. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. There are these four marks of the church. I think sometimes we kind of <laughs> blow past them and we don't know exactly what we mean. But just at the simplest level, just walk through it. When we say that we're, we're one, we mean primarily that we are a people who are defined by unity. The church is defined by its unity. Even as God himself, being three distinct persons, is still one God. There's unity at the heart of God himself. And unity doesn't mean uniformity. Those are two very different things. Unity doesn't mean the church is monolithic. Unity doesn't mean the church is homogenous. Unity is more than that. It means that we're all unique as individual followers of Jesus, uniquely gifted with unique stories and circumstances, and yet we are one people. And the church has a way of proclaiming the truth of the gospel and the reality of the kingdom in so many different ways, and yet we do it with one voice. We're one. When we say that the church is holy, we're recalling Leviticus. <coughs> Leviticus 19 and 20, you see this mantra over and over again. Throughout the book of Leviticus, you'll see it. I, the Lord, am holy, and you, my people, must be holy. That's what the whole book is centered on. The people of the church are to be marked by this kind of personal holiness. It takes on a different shape in the New Testament, but we're invited to live life in the Spirit marked by the fruit of of the Spirit. We are a people who are holy, but when we think of holiness, we can't just be thinking of piety. We can't just be thinking of, of this outward sort of visible righteousness. That's all part of it. But it's more than that. It's about otherness. When we're talking about God being holy, we mean that He's unique. We mean that there is none other like Him in the cosmos. He's unique. He's distinct. He is set apart from everything else. He is wholly other than us. And the church as a people is to be marked as holy in the same kind of way. We are unique and distinct and set apart from the cultures we find ourselves living in. The church is supposed to be holy. And then there's that other statement. Maybe you've heard it. We say that the church is Catholic. And over the years, people will give us that, that sort of concerned look. The brow furrows, and they're like, wait a second, this church is Catholic? Like, how Catholic is this church? Because I, di I didn't know this church was Catholic. I kind of like this church, but now I'm not so sure I like this church. I didn't know I was coming to a Catholic church. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. That's something we try to clarify over and over again. Catholic is little c Catholic, as we read it in the Creed. Catholic is just a word that means whole. It just means complete. It means universal. We mean the big picture of the church. We believe in the church that is universal. That means the church is not defined by my individual experience, my cultural experience of church. Church is not just what I think of when I think of church. It's 
beyond that. We're celebrating the church that is beyond Birmingham, the church everywhere. And that means we strive to be mindful of brothers and sisters in parts of the world who are a part of the church that are completely different from us. We strive to learn from the church everywhere. We recognize that we're a part of that family. We are bound to those people in that same kind of way. When we say that the church is Catholic, this is what we're getting at. When we say that the church is apostolic, I know that one can be a, a little confusing. What we mean to say is that the church in our day is meant to be marked by the same defining characteristics and attributes of the early apostles and the early church, that which was handed down to us. We believe we have this direct lineage tying us to them, to that tradition, to who they were. And this was especially important when the creed was being established because at the time there were all these divergent beliefs about Jesus. All of these people had kind of co-opted the teachings of Jesus for their agenda. And what the church was constantly forcing people to do, confronting them with, is show us where that is in the scriptures. Show us where that is in the life of the early church. Show us where that is in the life of the apostles. And the church is still now called to do the same thing. When we encounter some new thought on scripture, on theology, no matter how sexy or progressive it sounds, like we're drawn to these new ideas sometimes, and the church always has to be seeking. How is this connected to the scripture? Where does this arise from the scripture? Where do you see this in the New Testament? Where do you see this in the life of the church? Because we believe we're connected to that great cloud of witnesses. If you've read the book of Hebrews in chapters 11 and 12, like we believe those who've gone before us, we are deeply connected to. We want to be marked by the same things they are. This is what we're getting at. So if you consider Ephesians 3, if you consider the creed, what you're seeing there is a, a pretty optimistic view of the church. And then you have, again, the appearance of the church, seemingly ordinary reality of the church. And here they are with this very optimistic view. But here's the thing. We're wrestling with the appearances of a, a year, year and a half spent living in a pandemic. We're wrestling with that having to uh, adopt this, this unconventional way of, of being the church, unique, something we've never had to do in our lifetime. And I think for many believers, our view of the church during all of this has significantly diminished. We've come to all kinds of new ideas, new ways of thinking about church, and Practically, we can feel really disconnected, and not just physically disconnected, not just like the idea of not getting to see one another kind of disconnected, but disconnected from the church at a much deeper level during all of this, and people are beginning to recognize it. Throughout this whole season, we've been fed this idea. We've been entranced by the idea that if we can get to a vaccine, if we can do the research, if we can run it through all of these tests, if we can get it approved, and if we can get enough people inoculated, then this thing can come to an end, right? That is intoxicating, that idea. When you're in the middle of something really painful and somebody says, we can make the pain, going, uh, make the pain go away. When a, a woman is in labor and the doctor comes in and says, hey, I can give you this. Yes, please. Like, it, it, it's this intoxicating idea. Please, anything. We're drawn to it. 
And so we, we find ourselves during all of this, in the last year and a half, investing a lot of our energy in research, investing a lot of our energy in knowing what's going on. We want to read the news. We want to know the latest thing the CDC has advised us to do. Even as we pray, we think about this. We've prayed for those who are working countless hours trying to push this through and make this all possible, right? So that this can come to an end, so that the loss of life can be limited. But here's the thing. Here's what we're realizing is that we're there. The thing we waited for, we're there. People are getting vaccinated day after day. The line's getting shorter and shorter. In fact, states in the news now we're seeing are turning down vaccine because they've got plenty. We're there, right? And we're beginning to realize the thing that we're living through, it can't be fixed with a vaccine. I don't mean the vaccine's not good. I'm not telling you you shouldn't get the vaccine. If you think you should get the vaccine, get the vaccine. If you don't think you should get the vaccine, you should maybe be asking yourself, why do I not think I should get the vaccine? And take that seriously. The vaccine is good. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying the thing that we're living through and the way it has shaped us, that cannot be fixed with a vaccine. And we're coming to recognize it. Because we're in the middle of the thing we hoped for and longed for. And we're going, this is it? Because here's the thing. We find ourselves now in a situation we can't research or think our way out of. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. You can't vaccinate your way out of this. And for centuries, the church has taught us. When you're walking through these kinds of seasons of loss and tragedy, you can't think or philosophize or even theologize your way out of things. You can't try to explain things away to make yourself feel better. It won't work. There are some things you can't think or analyze your way out of. There are some things you can only worship your way through. You will never be able to explain it or make sense of it. You will never be able to find healing through all of our therapeutic and philosophical language, all of our reflection. It will yield us nothing. The church is pointing us worship through these kinds of seasons we have to be grounded in worship but what we had to do in in this pandemic is kind of adapt to different ways of worshiping together we knew from the beginning church had to change it was important it was incredibly important and so it was zoom at first which was cool for about two weeks and then everybody started talking about fatigue and whatever else wasn't as cool as we had imagined. Then it was YouTube. It's like, well, this isn't, this isn't so bad. This feels a little bit more normal. And then in the middle of last summer, I guess, we started bringing at least volunteers back up here uh, to be present and, and do church that way. And then we started allowing people in, right? Now we're doing this little hybrid thing where some people are at home and some people are here in person. All of that was good. All of that is necessary. But ultimately, what we're left with, and the, the moment we find ourselves in, we're left with less than church. When all of this is, is said and done, we're left with less than church. It's not bad. It's just less. There's nothing wrong with doing, a, doing what we've done. We've had to do what we've had to do. It's not bad. It's just less. Online church is a means to an end but it can never be a substitute. 
And I know there are people who've been doing online church for years prior to all of this, and they love it. And there are people who love it. They like the the convenience of the whole thing. They're going to quote Jesus. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I'm with you. It's amazing, this reality, this mystery of God's presence with us as we gather. But here's the thing. You and your spouse at home, you don't qualify as what Jesus is talking about because the church teaches that the two have become one. You're one flesh at this point. Even you and your family, we believe your family derives from that same thing. Family is one. So you sitting around with your family in front of the TV, like at the end of the day, that's less than church. It's not actually church. Even you and your roommates, I think we could all probably practically agree, that's less than what Christ intended for worship together, for his disciples. Zoom church, YouTube church, the thing that we've had to do for a year and a half is really kind of like a shadow of the real thing. We know this because we've been living through a lot of different things that feel that way during the pandemic. Example, movies. There are all these huge production companies that said, well, if they're not going to be able to go to the movie theater, we'll just release them at home. But we all know what it's like sitting on your couch at home, eating microwave popcorn, and watching a movie that you spent $30 on to see it on your 45-inch screen, whatever it is. It's completely different. There's no sound system. There's no dark room. You can't get your house that dark. It's not the same, right? There's no popcorn. There's no Coca-Cola like what you get at the movie theater. You want their candy. Same thing with your favorite restaurant. You learned this. Pretty early on in the pandemic, it was like, I can go to my favorite restaurant again to go. And we all know there's a tremendous difference between eating your favorite food on your kitchen table and eating your favorite food in your favorite restaurant. The server comes to the table and checks on you. Maybe the manager checks on you to, to, to see how you've liked it all. Maybe you see somebody you haven't seen in a long time. Maybe it's just the mass of people you don't know that provides a different kind of atmosphere. It's an escape. There's something incredible about it, right? We know that eating to go is a shadow of the real experience. And church is no different. Church as we understand it, is physical. It is embodied in human beings. We say it all the time, church is not a building. But I don't think we ever really get it until something like this. What we're left with is less than church. Just like Disney Plus, when it releases its newest movie, is less than the real experience. We have something less. But what's amazing what Jonathan and I have been talking about, what the elders have been talking about, is that we're actually finding ourselves in a season now where there's this opportunity to kind of get back to some semblance of normalcy, to begin to make that move. And we've been real intentional about it. So here's what, here's what I want to say. And hear me out. Listen, I get that the sermons do this thing where sometimes you're in and out of it. We live very distracted sort of lives. I get it. Hear this if you hear nothing else. We want to begin to move back to church as we've known it. We want to begin to make that move because we believe in the church. This is a part of our identity as followers of Jesus. This community, this particular church, this gathering, it matters, right? This group of people, it matters. And the summer is going to kind of be strategic for us. 
Summer is going to be a time where we're kind of getting back to worshiping together, trying to, to take the steps that are necessary to get where we need to be by the end of the year. When we get to the fall, we don't want to just kind of like try to start it up in a hurry. We want to start taking intentional steps. So we're not going to be requiring reservations anymore. We've been doing that. I know that's a bit of a hassle, but it's helped us so much. It's kept us from ever going above a cap. We've had plenty of times where it felt like the room got a little full, but it never got more full than we intended. We always knew what was coming. We were able to, to distance and things, and that's been great, but we're going to stop doing that. We're going to still require masks. We're still going to distance the chairs a bit. We're going to do what we can, but we're going to start taking steps toward getting back to normal. We're asking volunteers to start coming back. We're starting to like move back towards children's ministry, like really trying to look after our children because this has had an effect on them. Remember how long a year felt when you were a kid. Like this is affecting them, right? And so now we find ourselves in this really exciting phase like where we're able to get back to some things. And so we're going to start asking for volunteers for children's ministry and for media ministry and for setup and, and hospitality ministry, all these different things. We're going to start asking for volunteers. I get that it's been like a year and a half since you volunteered for anything. I get it. That was necessary. We needed to scale back. But now we're in a really exciting season where we can kind of get back to it. And I know, I know that the summer is like kind of an counterintuitive time to do it because the summer is notoriously tentative in the church. People don't just go on vacation from work in the summer. They go on vacation from church, apparently. It's been like that my whole life. I've always seen that. It's a time where we can travel, right? It's a time where we can move around and take off. But as someone recently told me, sitting in a, a lunch meeting, one of our people said simply, we've taken a lot of time off recently. I think we're all right. And so we just kind of want to press, and we get that the summer is, is spread out. There's a lot of different things happening. We want you to order your summer around being together. That's the, that's the big push. That's the big ask. Like, be present together. If you're in a small group, be present. If you call yourself a part of a small group, if you call yourself a part of this church and Sundays, be present. That's one of the most important things you can do this summer is be present. If you're a volunteer, be present. We're going to plan events. We're going to do dinners. We didn't get to do that last summer. We're going to do all of that stuff this summer. We're going to do it safely. We're going to do it reasonably. And we're just asking, be present. Give yourself to this one thing, being together, being the church. We want you to orient your summer around that. Because we can orient our summers around a whole lot of different things, and we generally do. And this summer, it's real important. I, I'm at that point. I, I feel God pressing that on me. It is important for us to be together this summer and to start kind of orienting some things around that, building our lives around that. And what I, I love about, about the creed is that it, it concludes powerfully, right? We go from the ordinary to this extraordinary thing, right? We say, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We say, we're believing this is going to happen. God is going to raise the dead. And right in the middle of all of this is church. We believe the church is in the middle of all of that. God is raising the dead. God is renewing all things. And right at the heart of the renewal of all things, the making of all things new, is God's people. You and I 
the church. God is working this extraordinary cosmic act of redemption. And right in the middle of it is this ordinary group of people in these ordinary gatherings around tables, around the word, singing songs, doing seemingly ordinary things. But as we, we come back to worship this morning, as the band comes and we move toward the table, it doesn't really come as a surprise. Because every time we come to the table, it feels ordinary. Every time we taste of this, this wafer, every time we drink of this cup, we're reminded of how ordinary this is. But it's no surprise. God has always been at work in the ordinary. God is mysteriously present in the bread and the cup, and God is mysteriously, powerfully present and at work in the church. He has always been at work in the ordinary. And so we want to invite you guys, as you partake this morning, as you worship this morning, consider what that looks like. Consider how you're to approach church in the days ahead. I get that it's been complicated but the thing we're praying about, and we want to invite you guys to pray about is what will it look like to get back to some semblance of normalcy? What will it get, look like to get back to worshiping together, to being together as the community of God? So consider it. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. And this is the blood of Christ poured out for the sins of many. Take and drink. Father, would you guide us in the season that's ahead as we've lived through there's so much uncertainty, there are so many questions, and yet, God, we just ask that that you would guide our steps, that you'd help us to be a community that is revealing the reality of your kingdom, the truth of the gospel, who you are in the way that we love and serve one another and the way that we relate to one another. God, would you bring an end to this pandemic and quickly? Would you be with brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling through it in a different way right now than we are? And would you restore the church in these days, we pray in Jesus' name.